Amen. Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. This will provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which will come from Proverbs chapter 12. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 12. But before we go there, I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. This is part of the final set of seven, the seventh set of seven. A great vision in the heavens that John on the island of Patmos witnesses. Though small and alone and persecuted, John is encouraged with this vision. Revelation 19, 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his saints shed by her. Again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and bright. For the first linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me. Write. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me. These are the true sayings of God. Amen. One of the great privileges and joys of being a minister of the gospel is that you are often invited to perform wedding ceremonies. One of the great and wonderful privileges of being a minister of the gospel who performs wedding ceremonies is learning to be in control of something you are absolutely not even a little bit in control of. You can't make it start when you want to make it start. Do you know when you make a wedding start? When the bride is ready, and not a minute before. There is nothing that you can possibly do as father of the bride, as minister of the gospel, or as groom. She's ready when she's ready. And you, you wait. In Revelation chapter 19, at last the great hour has come. History has come to an end. Humanity has come to its purpose. And what is that purpose? A wedding feast. The bride is ready. Why? Does history take so long? Why does the word, behold, I am coming quickly, 
seem to be at least 2,000 years, if not more. Because we have a very patient husband who is willing to wait until his bride is ready. And he will only have her when she is ready. With that in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 12. We're going to read Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. We've been preaching, reading, going through Proverbs chapters 1 through 12 over a long period of time. We're going to look to this morning, actually, so originally I was going to do 1 through 8. I pretty quickly changed my mind. I never told Andrew that. So you'll notice on the one page it says 1 through 7. That's my fault. So I'm actually going to do 1 through 7 this morning. 8 next week. So Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Here again, the word of the Lord. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Amen. Through my years, in addition to being able to perform wedding ceremonies, I've heard this advice passed around. Do you want to know if this young man is a good prospect for a husband? Look at how he treats his mom or his sister. Of course, the reverse is also true, isn't it? You can learn an awful lot about a young lady by seeing how she treats her father and her brothers. There is this recognition in this advice that the marriage relationship doesn't spring out of nowhere. That there's actually some root and foundation to our assumptions about life, about love, about relationships. We learned what we know from someone else. And so these relationships grow up into other relationships and they are informed by them. But hopefully something you have heard throughout the worship service today to come back to it again. There is one relationship which is primary to all other relationships. You may imagine that the first relationship you ever had was being a child in your mother. But the truth is, there's a relationship prior to that one. Because in spite of all her intentions or lack of intentions, your mom didn't choose when or how or what. God did. There's a prior relationship. And it's when we learn that our first and primary relationship as human beings is with God. That all other relationships begin to take their proper shape. We can only grow rightly in our relationships to one another. When we are first growing in our relationship to God. Put another way. Proverbs 12, 1-7 
is teaching us that Jesus makes us attentive to one another. It is Jesus who equips us, encourages us, trains us to be attentive and caring for one another. And so we must build our relationships on him. We must build our relationships on him. That is the first and primary relationship. Now think about this a little bit with me this morning. Notice in verse 1, Solomon says to his son, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Now, this seems like a very paternal thing to say, doesn't it? Fathers are in the habit of telling their children, do as I tell you, that's smart. Resist what I tell you, that's stupid. There's those great moments that every parent has always shared, and we look knowingly at one another. I told my child, don't lean back in their chair. I told my child, don't lean back in their chair. I told my child, and boom. And you know what every parent struggles with in that moment? Whether to laugh. Man, I told you three times, and you... Those who will not listen to instruction... Those who will not receive correction, those who will not alter their way of life, thinking, acting, living, are stupid. They are thoughtless. They do not make sense. There is a presumption naturally occurring in the heart of every human that when I came into the world, I knew better than the world and everyone in it. And it is this awful and awesome task of a parent to disabuse their child of this belief. To convince their child through love and discipline, through instruction and correction, that in fact, you don't know better than your ancestors. You don't know better than your peers. There is a world of wisdom around you, and you must let it in. There is a porousness to the self that is essential to our well-being. We have to love instruction. We have to love correction. We have to delight in discipline. This is rule number one. We could quote from Ephesians 5.21, where the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus, be submitting to one another. That the fellowship of the saints thrives on a mutual submission. That we love the instruction of one another. We love the correction of one another. We honor and submit to the words and the wisdom others have. We do not presume to know it best within ourselves. If we are to have a healthy relationship, if we are to have a healthy marriage, we must learn to submit to one another. We must learn to love the instruction and correction one another gives. There's this great debate in Ephesians 5.21. Does it apply to husbands? Do they submit to their wives? It's actually not as complicated as we want to make it sound. Every loving husband honors his wife's opinions. And every loving husband who ignores the correction and instruction of his wife is, Proverbs 12, 1, stupid. We must receive the correction of one another. Our husbands, our wives, 
and our fellow saints. This is how relationships thrive, by surrendering to each other, by receiving from one another this input. This raises potentially in Solomon's son an immediate concern or perhaps objection. If I am to live my life in a constant posture of reception, where I am willing to receive from all of you your corrections and your instructions, that's a very frightening prospect. It means I'm going to live potentially a very depressed and lonely life. Because there's a lot of you and only one of me. And if you all decide that you need to correct me and instruct me, that's going to hurt. But Solomon says, my son, don't be afraid of this. Now, in verse 2, he says, a good man obtains favor from the Lord. And a man of wicked intentions, he will condemn. You see, the willingness to submit to one another's corrections... The willingness to love instruction is rooted in the realization that our well-being is preeminently from God. I'm willing to receive from my fellow believers instruction and correction because I'm not afraid of them. And I'm not afraid of what they have to say. I know that my well-being, my goodness and my favor comes from God, not you. And so I don't have to be afraid of you. God gives me the favor. But just as submission to one another's instructions points us to Ephesians 5.21, a passage about marriage, so this phrase, obtains favor from the Lord, is a marital turn of phrase. It appears only two other times in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 8, when the lady wisdom says that all who are married to me have favor from the Lord. And does anyone know the other one? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This phrase, obtains favor from the Lord, is not the abstract well-being of a human in the world. It is specifically in the book of Proverbs, isolated on one who is married to wisdom, or who has a wise wife to whom they are married. A good man has obtained something good when he has a wife worth listening to, a wise one. This is what he is saying to his son. Notice this goodness of a life in which you are receiving from the fellowship of the saints, that is the bride of Christ, or from your own bride or spouse. This goodness of the favor and wisdom of God is contrasted in verse 2 with a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. By this contrast, Solomon highlights the fact that the goodness of the man who is favored by God with the welfare and wisdom of a good marriage, be it in the church's fellowship or in your personal marriage, that man is good all the way through down to the core. The contrast is wicked intentions. That's the internal motivation. Wicked desires and intentions and motivations. A good man isn't like this. A good man not only has good words. A good man not only has good actions. A good man has good intentions. In premarital counseling, Lydia and I are fond of giving a speech law. We'll say to young couples, the scriptures require you whenever you speak to say the right thing in the right spirit at the right time with the right words. Aren't you glad Jesus died on the cross for your sins? 
This is what Solomon says to his son. That our intentions matter. That the secrets of our heart matter. That the goodness to which we are aspiring in Christ is a goodness that is deep within. A goodness that we easily mask from one another. This is why marriage is such a perilous adventure. Because you just adopted a human being from whom you cannot hide your intentions. Not for long. I mean, you may fake it for a few months. Lydia and I are fond of going to newlyweds every month, once a month. And how are you guys doing? It's like clockwork. Month one, oh, it's so wonderful. Month two, it's so great. Month three, so we had a fight. Of course you did. Because you can't hide your wicked intentions forever. Because when you live in that kind of intimacy and proximity with one another, out comes sin. And you're not the good man you thought you were. And you are not the godly woman you wished you were. No, instead we are favored by God with a kind of fellowship, perhaps in our marriages, perhaps in the fellowship of the saints, a marriage with Christ. This, the bride of Christ, stands also as an instrument by God to make us good men and women. You guys with me? We submit to one another, thus becoming good. Through one another's instruction and correction, we put off our wicked intentions and in Christ grow up into something good. We are not naturally good. We become good through the favor of God, the gift of one another. But to receive this gift, we must recognize its origin. That this gift is in and of itself not the most glorious thing. I need to tread lightly, but in our culture I need to tread very firmly. My friends, John Calvin was right when he said that we are idol factories. And the great temptation so often for us is to take a Christian marriage, this glorious gift from God, and to worship it like it was God. So many of us are tempted to take a Christian congregation, this great gift from God, and to worship the church like it's God. And Solomon warns his son in verse 3, a man is not established by wickedness. We do not grow up into good men and good women because we're wicked. We cannot grow up into goodness with wickedness. We cannot last in this world. Our sin undoes our vitality and our life. Our wickedness needs correction. Our wickedness needs instruction. Because we, in and of ourselves, cannot endure. There is within us a fault and a failing that presents to us fatality. We're doomed to die because of our depravity. But notice the contrast in verse 3. The root of the righteous cannot be moved. But there is a righteousness that can grow up in us and through us that is permanent and everlasting. There is a righteousness that is unshaken by sin. 
There is an unrighteousness that is undaunted by the darkness. It is a root of righteousness. And he has a name. His name is Jesus. There is a source of righteousness, a fount of righteousness, a root to righteousness. How do I get righteousness into my thoughts? How do I think righteously? Get roots into Jesus. How do I have righteous words? How do I have righteous intentions, righteous motives? Get into Jesus. There is a great temptation in the Christian faith to aim for obedience. I had a friend in Oklahoma who was very fond of saying, Noah, when you aim for obedience, you'll get legalism. And when you aim for Christ, you'll get obedience. There is a root to righteousness. It's not me and it's not you. There's a root to righteousness and it's not the law. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. What causes righteousness to grow inside of my heart, my mind, so that I desire righteousness, so that I love righteousness, so that I produce righteousness in my relationships, so that I respond righteously to one another's corrections and instructions, so that I grow into the good man and the good woman God wants me to be. I have to be rooted in Christ. I need that root of righteousness, which is Christ. Jesus himself will say, I am the vine, you are the branches. John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But within this, we return again to the marriage theme in verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is rottenness in his bones. Like so many of Solomon's Proverbs, this has a fascinating and and sweet and superficial read to it. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. We could interpret this simply to mean women are more beautiful than men. It is generally true. We can interpret this to mean that if you've got one submissive, well-behaved woman, you look good in the world. We could interpret this to mean that that godly woman who's pursuing sanctification with all she's got, she makes her husband look good. But I can see by some of your smirks, I'm not going, you know that I'm not going to favor any of these interpretations, don't you? No, the whole flow of Solomon's lesson for his son is that you have to be rooted in Christ in order to grow up into goodness and righteousness And the crown that sits on the top is that you, through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, have actually made someone else godly too. The fruit of this righteousness that is growing up in you is that you are actually a blessing to someone. The excellent wife here does not create a moral burden on women. It creates a moral burden on men to be the kind of husband who makes of his wife excellent because he loves her, because he lays down his life for her, because he washes her in the pure water of the word, because he prays for her and he prays with her. He, like Christ, lays down his life for her and that root of righteousness grows up in their home. 
And that fruit of righteousness flowers in their home. The excellent wife crowns him as the living example that he is rooted in Christ. And he is producing the righteousness and goodness of Christ in his relationships with others. Let me make it a little more explicit, say, from 1 Timothy 3. Do you know why officers have to be husbands of one wife who care for their homes and rule them well? Because as Paul says, if you can't love your wife, you can't love anyone else in the church. Not well. Paul makes it clear that if, if you as a husband cannot love and disciple your spouse, that, that if you as a parent can't love and disciple your children, if you as a neighbor can't love and disciple your neighbors, what business do you have investing in strangers? There is a root of righteousness beneath us. His name is Jesus. He's at work within us and all around us. He is bringing out the fruit of his righteousness, his love, that we might love one another, give up our lives to one another, submit to the instruction and the correction of one another, and so together grow in our goodness. Now, there's a chief instrument by which this will happen. Sorry, I skipped the second part of the verse. Let me go back. Verse 4. But... She who causes shame is like rottenness to his bones. This image moves us from the top to the internal, from the display of righteousness in the crown above him to the loss of vitality within him. She who causes shame, that is, she who loves her sin, and she who resists... Uh-oh. Hello, friend. Can you go get Daddy and give him a big hug? Back to verse 4. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. That is she who loves her sin, who resists his work of righteousness. She who is deprived of a husband who's rooted in righteousness. Whatever the cause or case may be, whether it's her fault, his fault, or let me save you the trouble in most marriages, it's both. Um, You know, that he fails to to serve her in a Christ-like way and she fails to receive his service in a church-like way. In either case, there is shame that comes into the home and this shame, this disgrace that works within him, a loss of his vitality. Do you know how many physical labor exercises you can do with osteoporosis? Not much. Do you know how much effort and exertion you can put in the world when your bones are brittle. Not much. Dear spouses, do you know how much kingdom service you can do without serving your spouse? Not much. To love the world and to love the church, to be fruitful in this fellowship and in this kingdom, you have to love each other. Marriage has to come first. We grow up out of our relationships from Christ into one another, into the world. She is rottenness to his bones. She eats away the strength and the vitality of his labor. How does she do it? Now I'll transition. Verses 5 and 6. There is one instrument in particular that is more perilous and more deadly 
between spouses, between friends, between neighbors, between humans, than any other. It is our words. I said this recently in another sermon from Proverbs. You have heard it said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They lie. It's not true. Words are incredibly powerful, and Proverbs makes the point again and again. Words are among the world's deadliest weapons. Notice in verse 5 that all our words begin in thought and in counsel. There is an interior self that brings forth these words. This is the same paradigm that Jesus taught us, that out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say is directly a reflection of how we feel and of what we think. The thoughts of the righteous are right or just. By this, Solomon tells his son that in order to produce healthy, vibrant words, notice verse 6, the mouth of the upright will deliver them. In order to produce words that are full of deliverance, that are full of salvation, in order to produce words that are a blessing to others, that build them up, one must have thoughts that are right and just. In the words of Paul, you must not think too much of yourself, nor too little. You must think justly and rightly about who you are in Christ. You must think justly and rightly about who this other person is in Christ. You must understand the presence of God in this person, the work of the Spirit in this person. Words that deliver us in our relationships. Words that bring salvation into our relationship have as a root righteous thinking. Thinking rightly about who God is and what He's doing. Thinking rightly about one another and what God is doing in their lives. The great temptation that we so often face, my friends, is the opposite in the center of this quatrain. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are lie and wait for blood. When we are deceived in who we are, when we are deceived in who one another is, when we are deceived about the true identity in play here, we are tempted to seek life at least in our words. Our words are out for blood, and we say things that later on we want to say, I didn't mean them. But we did mean them. That's why we said them. We said hurtful things because we wanted to hurt someone. We said angry things because we were angry. Our words necessarily and inescapably revealed the true state of our heart. And the state of our heart was, I didn't love you right then. I forgot who you were. I was deceived about who you were. I thought you were my enemy. I thought you were a monster. I thought you were out to destroy me. And so out came these words. And they took blood. And they cut you and pierced you. You see, the counsels of the wicked deceive us into saying that which is harmful and destructive to our relationships. But thinking rightly about one another... Recognizing the truth in one another. Friends, when you hurt each other, notice I didn't say if. When you hurt each other, you must think rightly. Jesus died for that. Jesus died for that. Are you listening? Jesus died for that. 
You don't have to take blood from friends or family or spouses. Not for their sins. Christ's blood is enough. You need not use words that cut and rip and tear. You can use words that grow and heal and build. Because he's already died for this. His blood has already been shed for this. No more blood need be shed. Solomon says to his son that if our relationships are to thrive and to grow, then we must learn to think rightly about one another. This is one for whom Christ died. This is one who is loved by Jesus and adopted as a child by the Heavenly Father. There can be no room for hate for so, such a person. And so out of the mouth then comes words of blessing, words of deliverance. What is the conclusion of this? If we will submit to one another's words, verse 1, thus growing up into goodness, verse 2, being rooted in righteousness of Christ, verse 3, exemplifying that righteousness in blessing one another with righteousness, verse 4, that righteousness expressed primarily in right and truthful words said in love, then the net result is found in verse 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. That those who resist the instruction and correction of others cut short their own existence. They are overthrown and are no more. We are not islands. We cannot live to ourselves. We are not oak trees, which, by the way, survive because they get sun, rain, and soil. They themselves are not contained in themselves. Friends, we we depend on one another, but the wicked are overthrown because they do not receive instruction. They do not receive favor from the Lord. They do not root themselves in the righteousness of Christ. They do not share that righteousness with one another. And so they are overthrown and no more. Their words pierce and drain blood from each other. And as that life ebbs out of the relationship, the relationship ends. Their words destroy, and they are overthrown and are no more. But there's another way. The house of the righteous will stand. The house of the righteous will stand. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not offering you permanence as a family. Your family might not live on. I don't know. Here's what I am offering you. A place in a house that will stand. When it says that the house of the righteous will stand, this isn't a promise that the Baileys will be here forever. This is a promise that the church will be here forever. That the family of God cannot be overthrown, for it has a root in the righteousness of Christ. For it has an excellent crown, which is the righteousness of Christ given to the church in Revelation. For it is a goodness that grows within us and out from us in our words to one another. Words of salvation. Words like Jesus. Words like love. Words like grace. I was taught by an old dead pastor this last year to train my ears to those words. He said, have you ever stopped and listened? I'm so frightened to tell you this to other people's conversations and to count the number of times they say the name Jesus or love 
or grace or forgiveness. My friends, it's appalling how little those words are on our lips. But it's the primary relationship. But it is first and foremost in our identity. The house of the righteous stands. Because as Jesus taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, there's only two ways to build a house. On sand and on rock. And when we build our houses on ourselves, on others, on this world, it's sand. And there's a little shake in the ground and there's a little wave of water that comes rolling in and the house is gone. Rich Mullen sang, we are awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. But there's a different house. There's a different family. A house that stands because it's rooted on the rock, which is Christ. It does what he commands and cannot be shaken. It is Jesus who makes us attentive to one another. It is Jesus who makes us loving to one another. It is Jesus who works within us the kind of love and the kind of relationship we so desperately need and long for. Build your relationships on Him. Friends, Jesus makes us attentive to one another. Build your relationships on Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the wisdom of Solomon. We give you thanks for the goodness of Christ, who so loves us and so longs for our goodness and our righteousness to grow up within us. We thank you that he is so patient with us, perfecting us through the power of his spirit, sanctifying us through the washing of his word. Father, turn us today away from our sin. Father, release us today from the grip of Satan and of self. And Father, receive us into the strong arms of Jesus, that we today would fall headlong into the arms of grace and rest at peace in his love. Father, bless us as we sing now your praise, as we enjoy later your, the fellowship of your saints, And feast together on this food. And in these ways, Father, let Jesus be near. And let Jesus be dear. For this we ask in his name. Amen.